I don't know about you, I love that hymn, I Surrender All, but maybe I'm the only one. When I sing that, I feel like a big fat hypocrite. So maybe I'm the only one. But that's tough stuff. Do you ever stop and listen to what we're actually singing? Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Hmm. That's not me. (laughs) I surrender all. It's tough, isn't it? Uh, It's tough to surrender all. Uh, But it's really the only way, right? Uh, It's the best way. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now that as we open your word, we would remember that that's exactly what it is, your word. Uh, We live in a world that denies the supernatural. They say this is just a dusty book of ancient letters uh, and full of inaccuracies and myths. Uh, But by faith, we believe these 66 books uh, were divinely delivered uh, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, using human writers to record exactly what you want us to have. And Father, every time we open our Bibles, uh, the scriptures tell us two things. You are speaking to us and we see Christ. So I pray that as we go over some things this morning, that we would keep that in mind. Uh, The sacred uh, heaviness, the uh, divine seriousness of being a child of God and the vital importance of protecting uh, and guarding the scriptures uh, from error and from impurity, from misinterpretation, from misinterpretation application Uh, father because we know that when we open our bibles we don't come to it as neutral objective observers we bring a lot of baggage with us every time we come to the scriptures a lot of cultural pre-understandings a lot of personal experience and uh, father we pray that we would learn to submit all of those things under the meaning of the word rather than imposing our understanding upon the word. And it's not easy uh, because we're imperfect. But, Father, I pray that your word, uh, as Paul told the Colossians, would richly dwell within us uh, and that we would become people who are discerning uh, and people who love Scripture and people who understand the power uh, and the transforming nature Uh, that you have given us right in front of our eyes. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good news and bad news for you. The bad news is I actually have two sermons today. Relax. Gosh, her eyes went. And not a good. The good news is I'm only going to do one. Okay. So, all right. Wow. Hey, I know we have a roast in the crock pot. We got to get home, too. So I know we're going through a series on family, marriage and family and parenting from a biblical perspective. And I apologize up front, but we're going to I have to set that aside just for today. Next week, we'll come back. Uh, And I rarely do this, but uh, sometimes uh, I feel like we need to strike when the iron's hot or I believe that we have to. Uh, look at something that's really important. Uh, and I think the best time to do that is when we have when I have a captive audience. So uh, but it's something that affects us as a church. So, Dave, we're going to go with the tickle bug. OK, there you go. Um, I wanted us to just look just for today uh, at something uh, just to bring us all on the same page. Uh, to open up the scriptures next week. I know we're right in the middle of uh, those points about uh, what Satan knows about the family. And we'll get back to that next week. But I, I wanted us to look at this uh, for a moment. As an example, how many of you know this verse? You may not know the reference, but you know the verse, right? Uh, let's read it together. Psalm 4610 says, be still. And know that I am God. 
That's only half the verse. There's more to it. But this is the part that we want to uh, focus on today. We're going to come back to that. But we want to remember that verse. Let's say it one more time. Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. Okay, we'll come back to that in a little while. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture today. And we don't have very many slides because I want us to be hands on uh, and dig. go to first. Go with me to first Timothy, chapter three. And then we're going to go to second Timothy, chapter four after that. So first Timothy three, then second Timothy four. What is the role of the church? Why does the church exist? Why are we here? The Bible tells us there are a few different reasons why the church exists, but I want to look at this reason because I believe it's the most important reason uh, that the church exists. First of all, first Timothy is called a pastoral epistle. An epistle is what? It's just another way of saying a letter. And there are three pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy and Titus, because Paul is writing to those two young guys about ministry in the local church, how to do ministry, how ministry should happen, who's qualified to do ministry, uh, what does ministry look like, why does the church exist, all of these things. If you start in verse uh, 14, I think this is the preeminent reason or role for the church. And by church, sorry, uh, let me just say, by church I'm talking about two things at the same time. Universal church with a capital C means every single believer in Jesus is united in what the Bible calls the church. But then so the world can see this church, we gather together in small C local churches. So the local church is really a picture of the universal church, all born again believers in Jesus. It kind of puts flesh and bone on a spiritual entity. And by the way, church is people. Church is not a building. Uh, The Bible says you are the church. Uh, The church, uh, we use it to refer to a building. But the Bible uses it to refer to people. Uh, The church is a group of people who gather together to worship God and be discipled and to share the gospel with the lost. To fellowship uh, and to do all those things together. So verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. I like that. He refers to the church as a family. Oh, I guess we'll do some family stuff today. There you go. If you're hoping to learn something about the family, there you go. Uh, There is a sense in which your relationship with Christians in a local church is a family. Which is the church of the living God, the church, the pillar. Can you read that with me? The pillar and support of the truth. Now, that is some amazingly powerful stuff right there. The church, you and I as Christians gathered together in this local assembly are the support and pillar of the truth. What do supports and pillars do? They hold things up, right? What happens when there is no support and there are no pillars? Things crumble down. So a church who is not supporting and acting like a pillar for the truth of the word of God is really a church that's crumbling and falling apart. So the role of the church is to support and hold up the truth found in the scriptures. That is, I believe, the primary role and purpose for why the church exists in the world today. We are guardians and protectors of sound doctrine. It's really an important concept. In fact, in these three letters... Paul uses that word doctrine nine times in first and second Timothy and in Titus. And quite frankly, I think sound doctrine is taking a real beating among Christians today. It's boring. It's dry. 
I don't relate to it. It's not very useful. It's not practical. It doesn't work. I was hoping for a response. Nothing. Okay. Hopefully we'll see that that's just not the case. That without sound doctrine, the church will fall apart. It's just an empty religious gathering without sound doctrine. And I like Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. First for the Jew, then to the Gentile. So the power is in the scripture. The power is in the word of God. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. First and second Timothy and Titus really gives you a sneak peek into my life, into my calling uh, as a pastor. And then also for elders, especially elders who teach. Uh, Tim, Joey, Dave, Ron. I want you all in the hot seat with me. I don't want to do this by myself. It kind of gives you a sneak peek into uh, our lives as pastor, elder, teachers uh, and really what God expects of us. And it also gives you the God's perspective of what you should be looking for in a church. And by the way, the first and most important thing you look for when you're looking for a church is do they teach sound doctrine? They may have 2,000 people, and I love a good choir. I miss a choir, but hey, that's okay. It's, we're not equipped for that here. That's God's will, and we have awesome music. In fact, I thought to myself today, man, that music is good. But you know, you go to a bigger church for a special occasion, and you see a big choir and everything. You're like, oh, that's so awesome. You know? Or they have you know, uh, a young adult's ministry. It would be great if we had... A young adult group that met here, you know, they had 50 to 100 young people. Uh, some churches have that. But you know what? That's not the most important thing. That, that's not why we leave one church and go to another. It's only for the purpose of making sure we have sound doctrine. Everything else that flows out of sound doctrine is going to be really good. Our kids programs, our ladies ministries, uh, our music program, the youth ministry, anything that we have, if it flows out of sound doctrine, if it's built on sound doctrine, which we do here, we're going to have wonderful, good things. And I appreciate that about our elders and I appreciate that about all of you, because I know as far as I can tell that you love sound doctrine. So 2 Timothy 4, uh, where do I want to pick this up? Well, I'm in 1 Timothy, so why don't I go over to where I'm supposed to be. Uh, we read this this morning. So Paul says in verse 1, we don't have to read this word for word again. A few things. First of all, in verse 2, what's the first word in verse 2? Preach. Now remember, these are letters. When these were originally written, and really for hundreds of years, they weren't divided into verses with numbers and paragraphs. It was just a letter. So we don't really write letters anymore. But if you send an email and a text, you don't write, number one, how are you today? What's happening? Number two, are you going over to the habit tonight? Number three, I'm going to go and get a milkshake. Number four. I mean, that's, we don't do that, right? So I got you with milkshake. Some of you are like, yeah. So they just read it as a letter. And by the way, most people during the New Testament times when this is written could not read. And so the letters were written and some places in the Bible, it says they passed the letter on a certain place that share this letter with all the churches in Laodicea. They would read the leaders would read the letter in front of the whole congregation and they would read it over and over again. And people would memorize large chunks of scripture. They may not have been able to read it, and so they memorized it. And it was not uncommon, church history tells us, that many uneducated people in the early church could quote vast amounts of Scripture, including the Gospels, because they memorized it. It was so precious to them. 
And they didn't have they didn't have a Bible in every home either because there was no printing press until Gutenberg later. Do you ever think about that? People didn't have a Bible in their home. So verse two, Paul says, preach, Timothy, that's your job. That's your calling. Preach. And in verse one uh, or in verse two, he says in season and out of season. Do you know what that means? Whether it's favorable for you to do so or whether it's unfavorable for you to do so, whether it's popular or whether it's unpopular, you make sure you are preaching and preaching sound doctrine. He's saying there are going to be times when the people you're preaching to don't want to hear it. Preach it anyway. There are going to be times when the message you preach from the scriptures is unpopular. Preach it anyway. And we say, well, how could he do that? How could he have the guts and the nerve to do that? Verse one, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead and by his appearing. Paul says Timothy, you're preaching not in the presence of men, but you're preaching in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ Jesus. Everyone who teaches scripture is under a very unique divine scrutiny. He says, Timothy, you preach at all times, whether people like it or not, whether the season is in favor of it or not, because you are really preaching in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ and to whom you will be accountable. And that word preach is the word herald, not like herald, H-A-R-O-L-D, you know, like hark the herald angels sing. And that word's important. He's a herald of the truth, meaning a messenger sent with the proclamation. He's not an ambassador. An ambassador goes and negotiates. An ambassador goes and makes compromises to work things out. Preach is the word herald. Proclaim. Just proclaim you are a messenger. You're not there to negotiate. You're not there to compromise. You're not there to, you know, if people get upset with what you're preaching with. If it's sound, there's no negotiating with that. Just preach. Because you're under unique accountability. Preaching is irreplaceable. Uh, every every person, saint or sinner, needs to hear sound doctrine. Right. You know, and Paul said in first Corinthians chapter nine, verse 16, he says, I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And I know sometimes when I'm preaching and I'm teaching or even if I'm talking to you one on one, I see in your eyes, this dude needs to take a chill pill. I see it. I understand. You're like, well, he's really coming off strong on this stuff. And you're thinking, easy, easy, back it up a little bit. But this gives you some insight into what I'm thinking about my calling, about what I'm supposed to be doing as your pastor, as your shepherd. I know I need to work on my delivery sometimes, especially at home. We'll save that for next week. It says in verse two. Reprove. Rebuke, exhort a balanced ministry of, re- of preaching. Three different categories, three different places people find themselves. Some may need to be reproved. Some may need to be rebuked. Some may need to be exhorted. There needs to be a balanced approach. In other words, I love this quote. You know, I love a good quote. Afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. I love, I love that. Afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. But then he says, make sure with conviction in your preaching, you bring the remedy or else you're just adding to people's burden. In other words, it shouldn't always be don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But it should also be this is now what we should do. This is what we should do. This is what we should do. Or you just make people feel even more burdened if you're just always telling them what they're doing wrong without helping them learn how to do what is right. That's why you see the word instruction there. And don't worry, I didn't skip over great patience. I'm not ignoring it. I'll get there. That's just the most painful part for me. So we'll save it for last. 
And as far as rebuke, we don't encourage those who need rebuked or will end up assisting them to sin. Very few times. I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've had to rebuke someone. That's really a strong thing. That's when you go to a brother or sister to confront them out of love and you want to restore them. And because they're maybe going the wrong way or involved in something and they absolutely refuse and they refuse repeatedly again and again and again, then they have to be rebuked. That's tough stuff. But if we don't do that, what are we doing? We're just endorsing their sin. We're just assisting them in their sin. He says, do all this with great patience. In other words, wait for the results. Wait for God to work. It may be slow. You may be opposed. But you just preach. And make sure that you're kind and compassionate and patient as you instruct, as you rebuke, exhort, and reprove. As you confront unsound doctrine. Paul told the Ephesians to speak the truth in love. You guess which one I am. Some people are heavy on the truth. Some are heavy on the love. Say it to yourself. Don't say it out loud. Would I be more heavy on truth or more heavy on love? It's love, isn't it? I'm just too loving. I'm just too kind and gentle, right? I know. I'll work on that. Okay, I'm being sarcastic. There has to be that balance, right? We have to make sure that when we're beating the drum for truth, we're not using the head of the sheep to beat the drum. And that's hard sometimes because we get excited and we want to protect But we hurt the very ones we're trying to protect when we don't do it with great patience. And notice that he says the focus is on instruction. Above all else, doctrinal instruction. Bible stories are good. Illustrations are good. Uh, We don't want to just read a verse and send people on their way and forget about it. We want to explain scripture. We want to apply scripture. We want to teach people How to live in the light of scripture. Sound doctrine is of the utmost importance. It is the preeminent concern of every church. It's supposed to be. And it's hard because. Two things. We've heard it on Wednesday night. We heard it in Sunday school this morning. Acts chapter 20 verse 29. It's hard because Paul told the Ephesians whom he loved dearly. He spent three years there. And the scriptures there in Acts 20 tell us that as they went down to the dock to say goodbye, they burst into tears and they threw their arms around his neck because they figured they'd never see him again. And what were his parting words to them? Be careful, because as soon as I leave, false teachers like wolves will rise up from among you to lead you away. Wow, that's chilling. It's one thing. To have someone outside the bounds of Christianity who you clearly know is not a born again believer and they start teaching stuff that's really out there. No big deal. But more often than not. Unsound doctrine is very subtle and easy to miss because it comes from those who may be well-meaning. Who may be born again believers like us. And yet somehow, some way they've gone off course and their doctrine is not as sound as it should be. It's tough to see that. Paul told the Corinthians that even Satan masquerades as an angel of light. It's tough sometimes to see. That's why more than ever it's important like Paul's telling Timothy and Titus. You've got to make sure that your doctrine is sound and it's pure. You've got to know what you're doing. What's next? Oh, we're going to wait a second. So here's what we know. Not everything on Christian radio is sound doctrine. Now, I'm not condemning all Christian radio. I listen to Christian radio. I listen to it every day. Not every Christian song is sound doctrine. If you ever ride with me for very long in the car, I'm just going to apologize up front, because if we're listening to Christian music, I'm going to have a running commentary, a running critique. Then it can get very dark and very negative really fast. (laughs) 
ask her. She stopped calling me sunshine one year after we were married. I guess it's because I'm just very discerning. Uh, But I do have to be careful not to go too negative. There's a song. Oh, boy, am I going to get in trouble? Who cares? Uh, Well, there's just a song that was driving me crazy. I love the beat. I love the sound. I love other songs that this lady sings. I just I so. But I'm just evaluating song to song. But I know what that song is where she's singing about. I'm famous in my father's eyes. That just I don't need my name in lights. I'm famous in my father's eyes. That just drives me nuts. Because I think it's not sound doctrine. She's got herself in the center and God revolving around her. I'm famous in my father's eyes. She's kind of got it backwards. I understand what she's trying to express. I understand that. Like I said, she's got other songs that I love. I'm just saying being discerning. I'm listening to that. and like, that's not real sound. So do we toss her out? No, we don't toss her out. Just don't listen to that song if it bugs me. So, but you see what I'm saying? You guys, okay. Not every book on ChristianBook.com or at the Family Christian Bookstore is sound doctrine. We already know that, right? Lisa and I went over there Friday to pick up something we're reviewing uh, for another group uh, to see if it's uh, sound. But you walk in any Christian bookstore, any and even Christianbook.com. It's just they've got everything under the sun. And, and I really felt overwhelmed. Uh, I've got years of doctrinal training under my belt and I was overwhelmed. See this author. I don't know if this is any good. I don't know if this is any good. I don't know if this is any good. I know that's bad. I know that's bad. I know that's bad. Oh, how did that MacArthur book get in here? I don't know. Uh, that's a good book. Never mind. There's just a lot of really bad stuff there. Anything by Joyce Myers, I wouldn't recommend anybody ever reading or watching. And they had all of her stuff. Some of you may have heard of this book written by a lady named Sarah Young called Jesus Calling. Bad stuff. Over 10 million copies sold in 26 different languages. It said... More copies sold than Fifty Shades of Grey. And I thought, oh, that's why I should buy it. (laughs) Because I really enjoyed that book. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. And it didn't say that at the Christian bookstore. That's what I saw on a a different website. But if you know anything about Sarah Young, she promotes contemplative spirituality, which is what Christians today are calling Eastern mysticism. It's the same thing. Just a different name. Contemplative spirituality. It's all about listening prayers. It's all about being alone and quieting yourself and emptying out your mind. And she says that when she wrote that book, uh, that she and some girlfriends went into a room and turned off all the lights and emptied their minds. And they had each had a piece of paper and a pencil. And then God spoke to them. And whatever he said, they began to write down. By the way, the Bible doesn't teach us to empty our minds. The Bible teaches us the opposite, to fill our minds with God's word. In places like Philippians 4, therefore, if anything is true, lovely, right, uh, on and on, good reputation, think about such things. Dwell on such things. We're not supposed to empty out our minds. If you empty out your mind, anything can come in. We want to make sure we're filling our minds with the right thing. Where am I at here? Okay. With Psalm 46.10, let's go to Psalm 46. I'm going to give you an example. My intent is not to condemn. My intent is not to divide. But my intent is to issue a call to discernment. Psalm 46, verse 10, cease striving, or how many of your Bibles say cease striving? Mine says cease striving. How many of your Bibles say be still? How many of your Bibles say something else? 
Okay. So cease striving and know that I am God. And then he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, we don't usually quote the second part of that verse. Because usually we use be still and know that I am God as a reference verse for quieting myself, a time for meditation, a time of reflection. But this is the, that's the type of thing that I want us to be aware of, that that's very poor hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is not a man's name. Hi, this is my friend Hermeneutic. No. Hermeneutic is the science of interpreting Scripture. And there is a wrong way and there is a right way. It's exegesis versus eisegesis. I like how G-E-S-I-S is Jesus. because It helps us remember. X means what? Out of. Ice means into. Exegesis is good. Eisegesis is bad. Exegesis is I'm trying to pull out the meaning of the scripture passage that God, through the pen of the writer, gave to the original people who read it. So with Psalm 46, written by, I didn't even double check, uh, oh, Psalm of the Sons of Korah, to a specific group of people during a specific group of time for a specific reason. So as I'm interpreting scripture, I'm trying to draw out the meaning that God intended. It was communication done by rules of communication in the Hebrew language to the nation of Israel, to a covenant people. It's not merely eisegesis, me forcing my preconceived notions into the text. Do you see what I'm saying? In my prayer earlier, I mentioned how we all bring a lot when we come to a passage of Scripture. I bring my personal experience. I bring my life history. I bring my hurts. I bring my joys. I bring all the study I've done on this passage in the past. You know, I bring a whole lot of baggage Whenever I come to scripture. But the goal when I interpret scripture is to draw out God's intended meaning, not mine. So we don't usually do the second part of that. I will be exalted among the nations. We call that the author intent versus reader response. Author intent is good. Reader response is bad. Because reader response is now, this would be reader response. We've read this verse. We're going to go around and I want every single one of you to tell me what that verse means to you. There's a hundred of us here. We may have a hundred different meanings. We don't want to do that. We want to study the text. We want to study the history. We want to study the chapters before it, the chapters after it. Actually, if we did that, we would see that this psalm is part of a trilogy that goes with the two psalms that come after it. My footnote here says this psalm was the catalyst for Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. These are all these three psalms, 46, 47, 48, are songs of triumph. These three psalms have national implications for the people of Israel. So be still and know that I am God right away. I know it's not meant, first of all, right away to be applied to me personally. That comes at the very end. But look at verse one. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change. So he's dividing the psalm into two parts. One is dangers we face from nature. Second part is dangers we face from living in a world full of troubled nations. Verse two, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the most high. God is in the midst of her, meaning Jerusalem. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Now look at verse six. National troubles or troubles among the nations. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, meaning God, and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. 
He burns the chariots with fires. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So when we put together all the pieces, we learn that verse 10 isn't really about personal meditation time. That verse is two things. Quite possibly, it's a comfort to God's people not to panic when nature and nations seem out of control. Most definitely, it is a warning to those nations who refuse to submit to God, who refuse to see his power on the earth and in history. He's saying specifically to the unbeliever, to the unbelieving nations, quit striving against me. Observe my power. Know that I am God. Why did I tell you all that? That interpretation would be a historical, literal, grammatical interpretation, which is a good thing. We study the context. We study the language. We study the broader chapters. We look at the writer. To whom was he writing? What was going on? Who's involved? What are the differences between the people who originally read this and us today as we live here in the year 2016? We take all of these things into factor. And then we see an allegorical or spiritualizing approach to a text would just read that one phrase, cease striving and know that I'm God and say, OK, I need this verse is saying I need to calm myself. I need to center myself. I need to just sit in God's presence and realize who he is. Now, that is not wrong to do that as long as I'm not emptying out my mind and doing a centering prayer. That's not a wrong thing to be still in the presence of God as long as I'm focused on the scriptures. But what I'm saying is it would be a misapplication to make that the primary teaching of this text. Does that make sense? God communicated that verse, those words, for a specific reason to mean something specific. In our day and age, we're being led to believe it's impossible to know exactly what a passage of Scripture is really saying. I would disagree with that. I don't believe that God spoke to us in his word and then sat back and thought, okay, let me see if they can figure it out. It's not some kind of secret code. We talked about all the pre-understandings that we bring. Here's some presuppositions. Pre-understandings are not bad. Pre-understandings can be a good thing. I've studied this passage before. That's good. But we have to be willing. You know, there's cultural things uh, that we have to be aware of. But we have to be ready to change our pre-understandings if the scripture confronts that. Presuppositions never change. There are five basic presuppositions that apply to the whole Bible. A presupposition is what I believe before I come to this text. I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. I believe the Bible is trustworthy and true. I believe that God has supernaturally entered our world in the past and he will again in the future. Therefore, I believe the miracles recorded in scripture are true and accurate. I believe the Bible is unified yet diverse, but it never contradicts itself. Those are five things that I believe before I come to every text. So if I draw out any kind of meaning from a text of scripture that doesn't agree with those five statements, then something's not right. Let's go back to 2 Timothy 4 and we'll wrap this up. 2 Timothy 4 verses 3 and 4. He says, 2 Timothy 4, 3, for the time will come when some will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who will tell them what they desire to hear. And they'll turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. You know, it doesn't take long to walk from tickled ears to ears that won't listen. It's a very short journey. I'm waiting to see. Are we ready to move? I think some of you are still writing. 
So Paul tells Timothy there'll be professing Christians, there'll be nominal Christians in the church who will follow their own desires and they'll flock to teachers and preachers who offer them blessings and prosperities apart from the core sound doctrines of such things as repentance and sin and forgiveness and salvation. Paul's telling Timothy, there are many who claim to be in the church, but they're not really the true church because they don't tolerate sound, deep, demanding teaching and preaching of God's word. Flip over to chapter one of of, uh, second Timothy and look at verse 13. Hold the standard or retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Once again, sound doctrine. But he tells him, do it in a way that has faith that the scriptures are true and has love, which is compassionate when you're teaching it. Go to first Timothy chapter one, first Timothy chapter one, verse three. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths. In endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Nominal Christians, Christians who just profess to be Christian, but cannot tolerate sound doctrine. They only want to be entertained by teachings that leave them feeling good about themselves And to be entertained by exciting, charismatic personalities. These types of people, Paul told Timothy, want Bible teachers and preachers in accordance with their own desires. They want to dictate what the preacher preaches rather than God dictating out of the scriptures. And it's interesting that when Paul's defending his authority as an apostle and a teacher in 2 Corinthians, one of the accusations against Paul was... You're not hip. You're not cool. You're not charismatic enough. You know, you're not very impressive when you talk, Paul. They were saying the same thing that many people say today. We really rather not hear you, Paul, because you're kind of boring. You're not real interesting. What happens when a church gets to that point? A congregation of comfortable professing believers or Christians will be listening to a religious talk that contains no Bible doctrine. Back to Second Timothy with me to chapter four, this time verse 15. And then two verses in Titus and we will be finished. Second Timothy four fifteen. Well, look at verse 14. Alexander, the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, because what did he do? He vigorously opposed our teaching. Vigorously opposed sound doctrine. Go to Titus, which is right after Second Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 9 is our first stop. Verses 5 through 9 are the qualifications for an elder pastor, teacher. Verse 8, he should be hospitable. He should love what is good. He should be sensible. He should be just. He should be devout. He should be self-controlled. Verse 9. He should be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine. And ladies and gentlemen, as your pastor, I must be able to 
refute those who contradict sound doctrine. That's why I do what I do. That's why I say what I say. Yes, I love you and I do it because I love you. But above that, I do that because I am in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ Jesus, with to whom I must give an account someday for how I handle these scriptures. So sometimes you may not like what I say. You may be uncomfortable with it. But I would encourage you and challenge you to investigate on your own if I bring into question any teaching that I think is unsound. To investigate it yourself and to listen to what I'm saying and what Tim is saying and Joey uh, and Dave and Ron and others of you who have a gift of discernment. Titus chapter 2 verse 7. Well, verse six, I like this because he's talking to young men. That's a lot of you guys up here. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible and, and in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds, but also with what? Purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Just because you're young doesn't mean you shouldn't be grounded in sound doctrine. You're young, but God has commanded you to make sure that you're anchored in sound doctrine. It's for every age. It's not just for the elders and pastors and teachers or deacons or old people who used to ride dinosaurs long ago. Young people. I've heard small children in this church Speaking sound doctrine. I've heard elementary school children. I ask them questions and they, they speak truth. Sound doctrine. Lisa's told me a few times. I'm not going to name them. Lisa said she teaches. I don't even know what grade you teach. I forget. First or third. Thanks. I'm on top of it. She goes, oh, so and so. There's such a blessing. I ask questions. They know what the Bible says. And then we talk for they know what it means. These little ones know sound doctrine. It's a protective hedge. The church, that means you and me, is the support and pillar of the truth. If you personally, you don't leave it all on me. Now, Ephesians 4 says God gave some to the church to be pastor teachers. That's because he knew not everybody could devote all that time to studying the word. But you don't dare leave it all to me and to the elders and the youth pastor and the teachers and the worship team leader. You, too, need to be very discerning. In order to be discerning, knowledge must increase. You know, discernment is like a computer that's programmed. Discernment and the conscience only work according to the information that's put in. So to grow in discernment, I have to fill my mind with the word of God, a deep, sound understanding of the core doctrines of the truth. And if we don't, there's a lot at stake. Because if the pillars and the support comes down, the truth comes down, it all crumbles. Trying to think of something positive. It's kind of negative. Negative in a positive way. Does that make sense? So today is a call for discernment. Let's be careful. Let's compare everything we read and hear and listen to the divine standard of revealed scripture. You know, Paul showed up in a place called Berea, the book of Acts tells us. He comes in, he preaches, he teaches, people getting saved. But the people there say, that's awesome, Paul. Thanks for coming and teaching. Now give us some time and we're going to check the scriptures to make sure what you've taught us is true. Say what? You're going to check up on the Apostle Paul. He's an apostle. Paul was totally okay with that. Totally okay with that. Nobody is above the potential 
of making a mistake in interpreting and applying the scriptures. We help each other. We hold each other accountable out of love for each other, out of love for the word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the intent of my heart has shined through today. My intent is to be a shepherd. My intent is to lead and to guide and to love and to serve and to discern and to protect and to guard sheep that you have brought together. And it's tough sometimes. I'm a shepherd, but I'm also a sheep. Infallible, imperfect, prone to errors and mistakes myself. So, Father, I thank you for placing us all in this household of God, as Paul called it to Timothy, this local assembly, this local group of believers who have made the conscious, willful choice to choose this church to worship, to fellowship, that we can help each other, that we can keep an eye on each other, that we can encourage each other and we can hold each other accountable as we strive To protect and promote sound doctrine. Because we understand that it is the lifeblood of a dynamic church. Good music is wonderful. Giving money is very beneficial. Serving is a very good thing. Kids programs, women's ministries, women of grace, whatever. All those are wonderful things. But in all those things, the preeminence is the purity of sound doctrine. Because that's what supports us. That's what holds us up. That's what preserves us. That's what guides us through this dark and dangerous world. You spoke, the spirit moved, and men recorded the exact words that you wanted us to have. And those words are full of specific meaning that you intend for us to know. Father, we are infallible sinners. And so we pray that as we dig into the scriptures and we dissect them and we exegete them, that you would use your Holy Spirit to illuminate our understanding, to preserve us from making damaging mistakes uh, and that we would be strengthened and transformed that we would see the beauty of unadorned scripture and the power of it because it is you talking to us that you speak to us through the Bible that is how you speak to us Father please give us ears to hear what you're saying through these 66 books that you preserved for us. And may we grow, may we be transformed, may we be protected, as Paul told Timothy, until the appearing of the judge who will evaluate how we have done. So today, Father, to you be the glory. May Jesus be exalted. May your spirit be praised. And it's in Jesus' name we do pray today. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here today, everyone. Hope you have a very restful day.